Father, thank you so much for the uh, letter to the Romans. It's been such an encouragement to go through even these uh, chapters 5 through 8. There has been such great truths, such great mercies, such great grace that has been on display for us. um, Such challenges for us. But Lord, we're just so grateful that you have given us a letter such as this one to encourage us, to build us up, to help us get through this already, not yet, this while we're here in this dark and broken world. Um, You give us instruction on how we ought to live, how we can have victory, how we can have help, how we can have aid while we're here on this life and awaiting um, for our glory or glorification. So we're just thankful that you've given us this wise instruction. And Lord, I pray that tonight would be like icing on the cake and would be such uh, a great um, ministering tool for our hearts that we can be encouraged, strengthened, knowing that you truly are for us because of your son's gift, giving himself. Lord, now we, our sinful souls are counted free and that's a, a great privilege. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us your love tonight, show us the love that you have for us. Show us our assurance and our security in you. And I pray that those who do not know you will come to know you, will grab hold, and will taste and see that you are so good. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this text for our joy tonight and for your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we see in this passage, it is like a big exclamation point on all that we have gone through so far. Paul literally starts it with, What then shall we say to these things? What are these things? It's really all of Romans. And in our case, all chapters 5 through 8, you have this big, giant, long explanation of Paul that we who were once in Adam, fallen in a fallen condition, enslaved to our sin, separated and alienated from God, Christ has come and died for our sins to give us new life now Believing by faith in Jesus Christ, we now live in Christ. 
Now we have a new life in Christ. Now we have power to overcome sin. We have, uh, now we can view the law rightly. The law no longer condemns us, but now it helps, us, it helps us as a friend. Now we have the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell us and help us live unto righteousness and become more and more conformed into, into Christ's image. And so all this, and then even the last couple of weeks, with just, even if we just look at chapter 8 by itself, it's like there are great, great truths in there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law, the spirit of life has set you free. We have freedom. Now we don't, we, can't, we don't have to live according to our fleshly ways. We don't have to give in to sin now. Now we can say no to sin because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We're now heirs with Christ. And uh, we have an inheritance and uh, a glorification awaiting for us. Now we're accepted into the family of God. Now that we have the Holy Spirit, we're now part of God's family. We can cry out, Abba, Father, for help. We have the Spirit who indwells us and helps us and cries out with us and all these things. We're remembering all these things that we've talked about. And there's also this aspect of now that we're in Christ and we have this newness of life, we, have, we still live in this dark world with sin and suffering and we're groaning and awaiting to be finally perfected and glorified. And so now all these great truths, and then even last week the, 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 the chain that Herb talked about, how before the foundation of the world that he looked on us in favor and said, I have chosen you to be mine, to walk in this path that I have chosen for you, predestined us, he called us, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we have this great long exposition, and then Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these great gospel truths? And it's interesting, most of the letters that we have in our Bible were not actually written, handwritten by the person who spoke it. So like this, for instance, this was not actually written by Paul. This was Paul's words that were etched down by uh, uh, Tertius. So Paul would communicate these things, these truths inspired by the Holy Spirit. He would give these words and he would have a scribe that's writing it down. And so when I see this, this, this passage, for instance, what then shall we say to these things? I imagine Paul walking back and forth in a room and going, what shall we say to these great truths? And then Tertius is jotting down because Paul just goes on a long-winded refrain here. It's this long-winded dictation that he gives us. You know, even at the very end, I was almost getting out of breath just saying it. But Paul is, is, is there and he's proclaiming these things. He's been saying all of this and Tertius has just been writing it all down to give it to, to encourage the Romans. So Paul, Paul just, and you can imagine him thinking, what then shall we say to these glorious truths that we have, that I have gone, that have gone before this? What shall we say to these things? How does the gospel urge us to respond so how do we respond to all these things that we have just learned? And so with the text before us, I'm going to get really Baptist on you, and I'm going to give you three E's. I'm going to give you the enemies we see in this passage. These are all, uh, and before I give you the three E's, I'm going to give you one of them. But since God is for us, we see the big idea of this passage is since God is for us, there is nothing and no one 
that can separate us from this love. So when Paul is thinking, what then shall we say to these things? He's saying, if God is for us, there is literally nothing and no one that can separate us from that love, from that gospel that I just declare. And this is that long-winded dictation that he gives. And so with that, I want to look at enemies of God's love. I want to look at the evidence of God's love. And I want to look at the effect of God's love. And so all of these things will show us that because God is for us, our enemies are powerless. Uh, we have assurance of God's love for us. We see God's love poured out for us and on display. And so first, we'll look at enemies of God's love. And really, enemies is in like quotations. Because like, like this question in verse 31... If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer really is no one. No one can be against us, really. But we do have people who are against us. We do have not, not even just people. So when I'm talking about enemies, it's not just what are, you know, the traditional aspect of an enemy, someone who's against me. But it's someone or something, things that are against us. And what I mean by against us is things that are trying to cause us to doubt God's love for us. And so Paul wants to say, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so we have enemies of God's love. And the definition I'll give for enemies is anyone or anything that, can cause, that causes doubt in us, causes doubt to arise in us of the love of God for us in Christ. And so the, the first um, set of enemies, I'll say, these are like people. And so this is like, uh, who's the who? This is kind of like Dr. Seuss. I feel like Dr. Seuss when I say that. It's who's the who and who, is all, who also is the what. So that sounds like really Dr. Seuss-y, but it'll be, it'll be pretty clear when I, when I get through it. So who's the who? who? Who is Paul talking about? He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's that? Who's going to bring the charge? Who is to condemn? Um, where does it say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, and all these things were more than conquerors. So who's the who that Paul's talking about? Well, we can go to, um, I'm not sure exactly what theologian or whatever came up with it, but the three enemies, three enemies of the Christian. You have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil. So these aren't all specifically mentioned in here, but they're all implied. So first we have the world. The world is a possible who that can try to separate us from the love of God. And so we see passages in Scripture like Romans 12, 2, which we'll get to later. It's like, do not be conformed to this world. And now we're not just talking about the physical world that was created good and now fallen. We're not just talking about that. We're talking about the ideology of the world, the philosophies of world, uh, worldly people. that are uh, The world is full of broken sinners like us, but also broken sinners who don't have the love of Christ, who don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. And so this the world's ideology is against us and is seeking to conform us more into its image than into the image of Christ, into the image of life. And you also have uh, 1 John 2.15, which uh, talks about uh, whoever loves the world is an enemy of God. If you want to love the world, you will become an enemy. And so this, this idea of the world, again, not in this 
physical necessarily sense, but it's in the sense of the ideology of the world, the, um, the, the world that's under the dominion of darkness. So you have the world, you have the flesh. We should be really familiar with this. this is in, uh, we saw this in chapter 5 when we were in Adam. In Adam, we are in the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh will die. Um, this, this idea of the flesh that's inside of us is our enemy. Again, remember a couple weeks back, I think I mentioned this, that every sin is an inside job. We have like a, a spy within us trying to conspire against us in our old nature, our old Adamic nature. And then you also have James uh, 1, chapter, our, chapter 1, verse 14. It talks about um, sin. Uh, it's the desires and the lusts of our flesh are what actually causes us to sin. We lust and desire, and then so we commit sin. And so this, this whole idea of the flesh. So we have the world, the flesh, and then most obvious and most prominent in our text is the devil. And this goes back to Dave's message that he just had Sunday that talked about the realness of the devil and how real spiritual, the spiritual darkness is around us. And, of course, the object, the, the reason that the world, the flesh, and the devil are all enemies is because, again, they're trying to cause us to doubt the love of God, trying to get us to conform to their image, and they're causing us to sin. Sin is... Also an enemy, but it's really just what those things are trying to get us to do, to disobey God, to not trust God's faithfulness and his goodness. And so these things are the who that Paul is talking about. These are the ones that are bringing a charge against us, Satan especially, and we'll get into that more in detail. But who is the what? So you see that he, he doesn't just have someone in mind, but he has something so now we get a little bit more into things that aren't necessarily sin, but they're things that can cause us to doubt the love of God. Things that the world, the flesh, and the devil use to cause doubts to arise in our hearts. So you have, we can go to chapter, uh, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... And you go a little further. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything. And then Paul just goes, etc., etc. Anything in this entire world that will cause you to doubt the love of God in Christ Jesus is an enemy. And that is what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, nothing, no enemy, nothing that I can foresee or conceive of that can cause doubt or fear or Anything like that, distrust, disunity with God can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we want to keep these things in mind as we're thinking about who is our enemy. And again, enemies in that broader sense than just the physical sense. So we experience these things, these opponents and the opposition they bring upon us and work against us. By causing doubts and fears. Now, as I, was, as I was coming in to church this morning, I was like, I wonder how many of us actually can resonate with these enemies. And so, and so I, I know some of us really can. But a lot of us are not experiencing uh, tribulation, distress, 
persecution. And again, persecution is, is a super broad term where none of us are getting killed for our faith or starving because of our faith or going naked because of our faith or under danger of sword and being killed. So like I'm, I'm on my way in here, I'm thinking, okay, how, how do we apply this to our lives? And this is, this is kind of a lesson for biblical uh, hermeneutics and reading and getting, uh, getting your nugget, spiritual nugget for the day when you're reading your Bible. Not every passage is going to specifically meet you where you are at that exact moment. And so this is a good lesson that we can have when we are reading the Bible, when we are understanding the Bible. But it is there for a reason. Our brothers and sisters in, in Ukraine right now. Imagine them reading this text tonight. That would be really specific to them. That would be something a great encouragement to them in that way, in that specific way. They are certainly going hungry right now. They are certainly naked right now. They are certainly under the persecution of sword and death right now. And so it's a good lesson for us to learn that not every passage meets us specifically where we are, though this passage certainly does apply to us. And I'll show that. And another, another way that this, this text can apply to us, rather than the specific way, is it can be preparation. So we may not necessarily, and again, I don't want to make light of anyone's situation. Someone in here could definitely be experiencing these things. But for, for most of us, since we're 20 to 30, we have not lived long enough to really experience some of these things. Some of us have. But more than likely, if the Lord gives us 50 years, we will experience these things. We will experience loss of life in our family. We will experience cancer, disease. We will experience real trials and testings. So this could be a preparation thing. It's specific to some people. But then it's also something we actually do experience now. There are specific and obvious things that actually do apply to us here and now. I just listed all the enemies that we have. World, the flesh, the devil. Those things are applicable to every Christian everywhere at all times. We have temptations, temptation to sin. These are enemies. Anything, we experience things that are trying to cause doubt to rise in our hearts of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness, of God's love for us. These things do happen and are happening to us now. There are sin, there are necessarily sins, but there are things that are common to our age group right now that we do experience and that we can resonate with, like insecurities, things we don't like about ourselves, things that we're ashamed of or, or whatever the case may be. These things are common amongst our age group. Maybe contentment. Maybe we're wrestling with contentment. We don't like the job we have. We don't like being lonely and single. We don't like uh, the house we have. We don't like the car we drive. We wish we had more money. We wish we had so-and-so's life. We scroll on the Instagram and see so-and-so's on vacation. They look so much happier, than, more happy than I do. We have these things that we actually can resonate with. These are enemies and things that stir up in us a distrust in God, a discontentment, a lack of Assurance of God's love and care and goodness for me. These are things that we can all get behind. Even affirmation. We're, in our age, we're seeking affirmation. We're seeking to pull up our own bootstraps, get things done, have a career, have 
uh, please our parents even. Like these are things that we do struggle with and that we, do, we can resonate with. And these are certainly included in the etc., etc. that Paul is talking about here. Anything that will cause doubts to arise in our minds of the love of God. And so that's, that's enemies. That's who we are up against here. And Paul says they're not even enemies because of what God has done. And so that leads us to evidence, the evidence of God's love for us. What evidence does Paul give us here? We see that our chief witness to the love of God for us is seen in the sending of his only son for us. Just, just listen to this verse. I know we've heard this verse. This is, these are famous verses to most of us. We've heard it a million times. We've heard the gospel a thousand times. Jesus sends his son to die for us. Just listen to the, the confidence and the encouragement that this brings to us. If God is for us, just think about that. God is for me. You should say that. Say that right now. God is for me. That is incredible. The God of the universe who speaks and things happen, who says, let there be light and there's light. He, that powerful God, that powerful king is for you. For those who are in Christ, he is for you. Who can be against us then? Seriously, who can be against us? And then he goes and says, here's the evidence. Why is he for us? Why why can no one be against us? Because, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He He did not spare him, but he allowed him and gave him up for us. The father of glory, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, lord of lords, looked down on us and said, I'll pay that price. And it's the price of my only son. So I am a new parent. Um, Many, if not pretty much everyone. I don't have the, um, I'm not so used to being a parent that I know exactly how this would feel. And I certainly don't know how it would feel for an eternal almighty God. But I thought about in preparation for this. My son had and John. And would I give him up for you guys? And it's hard to say I would. In fact, I, I wouldn't. And you go a step further. It's his only son. I can have more kids. Lord will I have a daughter. But if it was my only son... That's, that's love. That's powerful love. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then Paul says, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's willing to give his only son, the only son that he has, that he's been with for eternity, he's willing to give him up for us, how much more will he give us graciously all things with him? That's great, great love. And, to, and not only to give him up and just to die and rise again, but give him up to the weight of eternal punishment for a multitude of people's sins. 
It's unfathomable. It really is. We sung it, we sung it just now. The life was made to die. It's remarkable. It's incredible. It's evidence of God's love for us. And this, and this really does show the nature and the character of God. The, the giving and the benevolent giving God. We have a culture that looks at God as the demander. He demands our obedience or else. Obey, obey me or I'll punish you. Obey me or this. The dictator type God. We have a God who is a benevolent giver. Who gives his son for us. God looked down on and saw our disobedience, our rejection of him. And said, the price for their redemption is my own beloved son. He said, I'll pay it. Jesus is the price of our redemption. Does this not prove God's love for us? Can we dare say when we're met by enemies, God doesn't really love me? Can we say that when we know what it cost him? And this, uh, John, John Calvin says this actually. He says that a text like this can stir up in us a question that is really unthinkable. Does God love us, those who are in Christ, more than he loves his own son? This is the kind of thought that we have when God sends his own beloved son for us. Does God love me more than he loves his own son? He's willing to give his own son up. Does he love me more than he loves his own son? This is evidence of God's love for us. When our enemies and troubles ensnare us, the only place we can go to know that the Father loves us is verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Refuge, the Father loves us. He loves us his son's life's worth. This is a, par- the, a parallel passage to this. It is in chapter 5. We went over it many, many weeks back. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we now have been justified by his blood, much more, much more now that much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So not only does he give his own son to be slaughtered, to be mocked, to be ridiculed for us, but he gives his son for enemies. We were against God, not wanting anything to do with God. And God said, I will send my own son. I'll give him up. I will not spare him. Uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't really know what this is like. But Jesus crying out, if there's any other way, any other way, God, any other way. And God said, this is the only way. This is the only way. That is love. The cross is where we look. When we have enemies, when we have trials, temptations, sins, persecutions, famine, sword, nakedness, We're in Ukraine. Where do we look to know that God is really for us? He gave his only son for us.
Paul wants, Paul wants to teach us something here. He wants us to... He wants, to teach, he wants to teach us how we ought to think and process these enemies that come upon us. He wants to teach us that when we receive this persecution or this trial or this loneliness or this insecurity, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Say to your enemy, say to Satan, say to the world, say to your flesh, no, he sent his son for me. He sent his son to die for me. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me. That's what Paul wants us to see here. What shall we say to these things? No one, no one can be against us. No one can separate us. We all have insecurities, fears, seeking affirmation. We need to know what is happening when our trials and temptations are coming upon us to separate us, to sever the union that we have with Christ, to sever the understanding of the love of God for us. That is what these enemies are doing. That's why they're enemies. And Paul is saying, those enemies are eviscerated by the love of God in sending His Son for us. Satan, and this is, this is what Paul talks about, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Satan would love to come into your situation, your discontentment, your insecurity, your, temp- your temptation to sin, your disease, your whatever. And he wants to creep into your head and say, does God really love you? Does he actually love you? Would you be going through this if he really did love you? Just like in the Garden of Eden, it's the old ancient lie. Does God really love you, Eve? He's keeping this tree from you. There's no way he can possibly love you. He's keeping this tree from you. You Think of all the knowledge of good and evil that you will have if you just eat of it. He's keeping that from you. And that's that's the lie. That's the trick. Does God really love me? And what Paul is saying is, oh, he does. He really, really does. Whose voice are we going to listen to, Refuge? When we, when we hear these temptations arise, even in our own flesh, maybe I am guilty. Maybe I am still an Adam. No, we look to the cross of Christ. He gave His only Son for me. We, can, we look to the garden. We can also look to Job. Job, again, those who grew up in a Christian home, we know the story of Job. We see Satan, we see the accuser coming to God and saying, Job doesn't really love you, God. He only loves you because of what you give to him. You've blessed him with a great family. You've blessed him with many possessions. He's got ox, sheep. He's got the whole nine yards. He's one of the wealthiest, righteous men but he only does that because of his good health and because of the possessions you give to him. If you took that away from him, God, then he would curse you. He would say, forget you, I'm done. He only loves you because of the possessions that he gives. And so, so God goes, let's find out. Have at it. Only don't touch him. So boom, Satan comes, takes his possessions, takes his family, takes everything. He says, I will still, blessed be the Lord. He giveth and takes away. And Satan comes back again. 
So he says, well, but you, he still, he only loves you because he's got good health. He only loves you because he's, he's still alive. That's it. That's the only reason why he loves you still. So God says, okay, go ahead. And so strikes him with horrible disease and boils and all those things. And so then we, we go from, from there, we move on. Job starts to wrestle with these things, the enemy, his sicknesses, his loss of life and his family, all these different trials and tribulations. He's got a couple bozo friends that come along the line and say, Job, listen, man, you got to get, get right because the reason you're experiencing these things is because of your sins, because of X, Y, Z, giving him wrong advice. What Job should have said is, no, 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 this isn't why I'm having this. I need to look to Christ. But what happens as we read through the narrative, we are outside of the story and we're going, Job, 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 Job. It's Satan. Satan is doing these things. Satan is accusing you. Satan is questioning the love of God to you. His friends are saying, it's because of this, it's because of that. And we, and Job is wrestling. He's going, why is this actually happening to me? And we can be caught in this situation. Why, why is this actually happening to me? And we, on the outside of the story, are going, it's Satan. It's the accuser. He's after us. And then at the end of the story, Job starts to break down. And then God appears to him and says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am, Job? And then what happens? Job repents and he gets twice as much as he had before. Let us see the love of God for us. And so now you might be thinking in your head, okay, well, how is God loving us in our trials and temptations and Job when you've gone through, when he's allowing and also allowing slash giving these things and letting them happen and inflicting them on us? It even says that it was the evil that the Lord did to Job. And again, evil is not the Lord sinning or doing evil. It's just bad things happening and God allowing them and actually ordaining them to happen. And so how can God be good and loving and have this stuff happen to us? Well, first off, we caused these problems. We sinned in Adam. We caused this spiral and down, downfall of humanity. We caused these things. But these trials expose our need for God. And they enhance our relationship with God. These are good things because when we are met with them, it forces us to look to the cross. To look to the life that we have in Christ. We live in a fallen, broken world. These trials and hardships and enemies are used for our good. So how, how do you know that God is actually for you? It's when you see enemies who are coming to taunt and, and take away your understanding of the love of God. And God takes those enemies and uses them for his purpose, which is for your good. We just talked about that last week. All, he works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love him. And so not only do these enemies not separate us and cause us to doubt God's love, but they also are used by God to encourage, enhance our relationship with God. Again, think back to Job, who at the end was enhanced 
in his relationship with God. And you've got Joseph, and you've got many others who have experienced the same thing. We don't have time to get into those. So now, what is the effect of God's love? So we've moved from the enemies and our experience with our enemies. We've moved to the evidence of God's love, and we've experienced that. How to answer back. Now, what is the effect of God's love? What does it actually produce in us? More than what we've already seen. Well, in our text, back to our text in verse 36, Paul just randomly breaks into, as for your sake, for you, the Lord's sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He like takes a random break in the middle of this. Like it's almost like a natural thing that Paul just goes, oh yeah, persecution, we should expect that. And so we should not be surprised at the appearing of these trials And we should have real joy in them because of the love of God for us. What is the effect of God's love for us? In our trials, we can have real joy, real comfort, real contentment in our situations. Paul just casually brings up suffering. These sufferings cause us to become more like Christ. This is another effect that those who are in Christ, when we experience these things, we can, it causes us to be more like Christ, which is what really brings happiness and joy, by the way. This is how we were created for. We were created, chief end of man was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This, how do we have real happiness? Be as much like Christ as you possibly can be. Hebrews says that he had the oil of gladness beyond all of his, com, uh, his companions. He was happier than anyone else in all the world. And experience the most sufferings and most trials than anyone else. This verse and sufferings in general meant a lot to the Apostle Paul. Think about the Apostle Paul's life. Think about 2 Corinthians when he lists the whole slew of trials that he experienced. He experienced every single one of these. Famine, nakedness, persecution, sword, danger, trials... Paul experienced all of these things. Paul was no stranger to these enemies. And yet Paul says, what does he say in in verse 37? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Paul is saying, in all these things, he's walking back and forth. Remember, Tertius has gotten all these things down as fast as he can do it. In all these things, Paul's thinking back to all the lashes, the beatings, the things he's experienced, the shipwreck, the snake bit, all these different things. He's thinking back. Nah, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I am sure, Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, anything can separate me, can separate us in Christ from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul can say, I am sure that nothing can separate me, even in the midst of all that suffering, and by the way, the love of God for him gives him confidence. He was a murderer. The Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul, was a murderer. He was the chief of sinners. And he can say, I am sure that because God did not spare his own son and gave him up for me, there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul often breaks out 
He often talks about suffering just randomly and puts it into his letters. They're littered in his letters. Even in our context, future glory, all the sufferings, the groanings, it's littered with suffering. It's a casual thing. It's something that actually happens. Enemies are rampant and abundant. But how does Paul combat these enemies? He does it the same way that he tells us to. God is for me. We say to ourselves, God is for me. Why is he for me? How do I know he's for me? He gave his only son for me. He is committed to my good. And so, in our text, we see that since God is for us and proves that he is by giving up his own son, we can be sure that our enemies do not stand a chance. Because we are more than conquerors through his love. He gives us more than we need. God gives us more than we need to combat these enemies. These, remember what I said in the beginning? These quote, quote unquote enemies? They really don't stand a chance. It's like we have a, a spider in our house and God gives us a machine gun to kill it. It's like we have more than we need. It's like the enemies are bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's like you don't stand a chance. Because God gives, he gave his own son for me. There's no way I'm get, there's no way you're getting in between that. I know God is for me. I know God loves me. That's what Paul wants us to think here. When God displayed his love for us by giving up his, his only son to become accursed, condemned in our place, he stripped the enemy of all his power. Literally all his power. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When our fierce accuser tells us of our guilt and shame, we can say, this is what happens. We, we, have, we, we sin, we fall short, we fall into temptation, and the doubts arise, and Satan goes, oh, you're so guilty. You're guilty, guilty, guilty. And what now, because of, we know of God's love for us, what can we say to Satan? We can say, oh, no, no. I'm way more guilty than you even realize, Satan. I'm way more guilty than you even know. But guess what? Christ Jesus died for me. He took my sin, my shame, bore the weight of my penalty, and now my sinful soul is counted free. We can say, I am far worse than you you realize, but God is for me. And he loves me. How much does he love you? His own son's worth. I love the song by Shane Shane, Embracing Accusations. It says, the father of lies, the great deceiver, the who, is telling the truth. He's saying, you are condemned before God. And we could say, yes and amen, but... And then in chain and chain, they say, he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. Jesus bears that shame, becomes a curse for us, so that we can be, our sinful soul, counted free. God is for us. He loves us. This is also portrayed in Zechariah chapter 3 with the priest with dirty clothes. We won't go there. But the priest has dirty clothes. Satan, Zechariah 3, you should really look it up. Zechariah 3, the priest is standing there with dirty clothes. Satan goes, guilty, guilty, guilty. And then the angel of the Lord 
Dave said he believes it's Jesus. I agree. Jesus standing there saying, nah, there is no, I, there, remove those filthy garments and give him rags that are clean, spotless. There is no iniquity on him. I have borne that iniquity. This is the only reason Paul of all people can claim, I am sure nothing will separate me. We are now blameless before God and our enemy, and we are blameless before God and our enemies because the price of our redemption has been paid. And we know this to be true because Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And you can even go more than that, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When he ascended into heaven, he sat down. And he's interceding for us. We can be sure that we will also be raised. So what kind of response now do we have here and now? This gives us a humble confidence. We have confidence before our enemy. Not confidence in what we've done and what we've achieved, but a humble confidence, meek and lowly to serve others because we have received the greatest blessing, the greatest sacrifice. We are confident and assured because God will not pay for our redemption price with his own son's blood and then decide not to keep us. Think about this. Why will God not let me go? Because he has given his own son for me to pay my debt. So if God was not willing to spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us to endure what he endured, would then God turn around later down the road and say, nah, I'm not going to hold on to you. I'll let you go. That would mean that his, that his own son, he gave him up in vain. He, would put, it, he put his son through all that for nothing for you. We can be assured of this. God has staked his love for his son in those whom he died for. In other words, God would have to reject his own son in order to reject us. You say, how can that be? Because we're in Christ. We are so united to Christ that in order for God to say no and to reject us now that we're in Christ, he would have to reject his own son. Because we stand before God with clothed in his son's garments. Just like Jacob, clothed in Esau's garments. We stand before him with his clothes, his righteous clothes. So, we are as secured in our salvation as those who are in heaven with God now. Think about this. The saints in heaven right now, with God, are more happy, certainly, but they are not more secure. We, who are in Christ, are just as secure before the Father as those who are in heaven right now with the Father. Why? Because God sent his only son for us. He did not spare him, but gave him up for us. This is confidence. This is real joy in the midst of circumstances. This security frees us to love and obey. Now it's no longer up to our works of righteousness. Now we know we can trust in another's. Now we can freely serve, freely give, because we have been given in Christ all things. Now we can humbly lay down our life and our rights and serve and 
tell the world about the great news that God gives his son for those whom he loves. Those who trust in him. Those who cling to him by faith. And I, and I hear some of what we're saying in here is I don't really feel this love connection with God. I struggle to know that God really does love me. How do I actually experience this love? And again, this is my, this is my Christian background. Growing up with all the theology, coming in, coming out, being numb to the stories of the Bible, being numb to God coming and actually dying for our sins. It's all up here. It hasn't reached the heart yet. So I get it. I get that some of us in here are going... I just don't, my heart doesn't burn within me like that. What should I do? I know the gospel facts. I know that Christ died and rose again and all died for pay for my sins and all those things. But it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't cause my heart to cry out and to burn within me. What should I do? I don't have any joy. I don't have any assurance. I don't experience this love. And I would say... Again, it's going to sound crazy because you've grown up in the church. But you have to believe it by faith. You have to grab hold of it by faith. You have to cry out to the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. I need your help. I need you to cry out within me. Abba, Father, help me. Help me. Help me. Help me. Make this truth. Impress this truth upon my heart, Lord. Help me to believe this by faith. I believe. Let's cry out with, in, in Mark chapter 9, the Father. I believe. Help my unbelief. This is what we need to be crying out to God for renewed affections. And some of us in here might be going, I don't need any of this. What do I need, what do I need the love of God for? I feel totally happy, totally fine right now. And I would say, why wouldn't you want this love? I know, I know we're all going through these trials, these insecurities, all these things that we've talked about, these enemies. We all experience them. But the difference is, with Christ, we can say, I know that God, the Lord of lords, King of kings, is for me. And there's nothing that can separate me from his love. I am totally secure in him. I can look at my insecurities in the face and say, yep, that's me. But guess what? Christ died for me. God loves me. God is for me. God is using that for my good. Why wouldn't we want this? Why wouldn't we want the love and security that we're seeking in other things? Why wouldn't we want to be content with our situation rather than always wanting the next greatest thing? So I would, I would ask you, for those who are not in Christ... To think about these things, the things that Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Think about these truths, the fact that God would not spare his own son, but give him up freely for us. For those who believe in him by faith and trust in him and cling to him. And what does God say to those who are outside? Those who are still enemies. He says, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come. Come drink freely. Come to the fountain of ever-flowing, ever-benevolent grace. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. 
Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. That love that we are talking about is for you. Grab hold of it by faith. Salvation is so near to you. The gospel is the greatest story ever told. Ever told. That God would look down upon his enemies and say, I'm going to give my only son, who I've enjoyed eternal fellowship with, I'm going to give him up so that he can be among them, in the muck and the mire with them, and die for them. That is the greatest story ever told. God, the creator of all things, puts on humility, meekness, lowliness. The king of kings puts on meekness and lowliness. He comes to serve and wash our feet, to give his life for us. That is the greatest story ever told. Hollywood cannot tell that story any greater than it's already been told. It tries. Every, every movie replays the gospel. Everything's good. Problem happens. Rise to, conf- rise to climax. Things get better again. That is the story of the gospel. And it's only, only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can be saved. And you can say that I know God is for me. He loves me. His son's blood's worth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make this truth, imprint this truth fresh upon our hearts tonight. Help it to stir within us a fire and a flame that burns for the rest of our lives. I pray that we would go out of here skipping and dancing with joy, saying, God is for me. He gave his own son for me. He's willing to give anything for me. He's not willing to withhold anything from me. How do I know this? Because he's given the very best thing that he has for me. He's laid down his own life for me. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd impress that upon our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd pierce hearts tonight. Renew our affections. I pray, Lord, that small groups will be so encouraging, so beneficial for us. We love you, Lord. We really, really do love you, Lord. It's the best thing in the world to be a Christian. To be loved by you. I pray that we would experience that. Please, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.